Racial oppression leads three families to evaluate their lives and make a decision to leave behind Jim Crow laws for a life of economic opportunity. The book, Warmth of Other Sons, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Right? I'm better. I was a little under the weather. I'm doing a lot better. Thank you for asking. (laughs) How are you, Alexis? Um, I'm doing well. I had a drama-free week, which Mm -hmm. is a good and positive thing. Yeah. Um, You know, the last time we were together, we did a live show. (laughs) We never talked about it. Never talked about it. You guys, Liz Society did our first ever live show. Yeah. Yeah. Applause, insert applause here. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. I think we did a um, really good job on it. Yes, it was I, for a private audience. A company asked us to come in yeah. for their employees. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we brought the house down. <laughs> y- yeah, we did that. <laughs> we did good. But they enjoyed it. I still, I enjoyed um, it. I've heard a couple of things about it since. Oh, and, wow. Um, it was very positive feedback, so... That's a bonus. I'm glad you brought this up. I don't know. You know, we poured so much of ourselves into it the month that we had it scheduled. Yeah. Um, that when it was over, it felt like birth and a baby. Like, let's move on. In real life. <laughs> yeah. Can we I'll say that? We'll never talk about that gestation period ever again. <laughs> Ooh, that was intense. But, but we got through it. It was yeah. our first time. We were just out there, mm-hmm. exposed and open to the world. With people looking at you, just looking. Yes. You know sometimes what? laughing, sometimes not. Ooh, real time feedback. It's a scary thing. <laughs> it's real scary. <laughs> but it's reality. Yeah, and it's prepared us for future live shows. Okay, folks. Yeah, it's going to be great. All right. When we start doing that <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis. It's going to be a thing. Don't worry yeah, about that. Yeah, for sure. So, Getting into the show, each week we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we're reading. Mm -hmm. And this week's theme is why we left the South. (laughs) Well, I personally didn't leave the South. Yeah. And neither did my mom. Mm -hmm. But I have generations before me that were in the South. My family base, um, my grandmother, when I'm speaking, my maternal grandmother. Yeah. Family base is in Jackson, Tennessee. And my grandmother left when she was either two or three. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't talk about the South much. What is she going to talk about? She doesn't even consider it as, you know, part of her life. She feels like she's always been here, which is true. Mm -hmm. You know, most of her life she's been in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So um, I reached out to my... What year was that, do you think, your family left? Yeah, um, my grandmother left when she was about two or three years old. So that would have been in like 33, 34. 1933? Yeah. So in the middle of that great migration period we're going to discuss today. Yep, right in the middle of it. And at the end, well, kind of in the middle of the Great Depression. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. So and from what I understand, she left. No, her mom left. Mm hmm to work in Milwaukee for um, a factory. 
okay. there were jobs here. And my grandmother's sister, no, my great grandmother's sister was already here. So she came to join her. A lot of people left to meet up with family that had already made the journey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she would have come by train. Okay. And, uh, you know, we, in the story, they talk about the train ride to yeah, Chicago. Book we read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, she said either train or bus. They're not really sure. Mm -hmm. um, but when she got here, she did work. She found the job and it, it was a good job. It was good money. So she had kids? No. When she okay. came. Um, she was single. She came single and correction. Mm -hmm. When she came, she came alone. She went back and got my grandmother. Okay. I don't know the time period between. So that. she had one daughter. Yep. She had she one left. daughter. Mm -hmm. No husband. No husband. Okay. So she went back to get my grandmother, mm -hmm. brought her back. And, you know, they, you made a life here. But what she did was my grandmother had, her father, I believe, was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother kind of spent her time between Milwaukee and Chicago. Okay. And um, my grandmother really valued family. So being around her family in Chicago was a big deal to her. Do you know what she did for work when she was in Missis uh, Tennessee? My great grandmother? Yeah. No, that okay. I don't. I feel like she was really young. Oh. Maybe in her early 20s. Okay. Um. But I'm not sure what she did for work. But after the factory job ended, because as I understand it, once the war was over, the jobs went back to the men. Mm -hmm. And so the women went into housework. So she did work for a white family um, for most of her adult life. She worked for a In white Milwaukee. family. In mm Milwaukee. -hmm. Okay. She sure did. And at one point, I understand she lived with that white family, but her daughter did not. Mm -hmm. my, I think my grandmother lived by herself. At wow. a young age, while her mom works was for the employer, living mm -hmm, with the employer, living with the employer. So that was some interesting family history that I got. I, I'm not sure I'd heard any. Maybe I heard a portion of that before, but it was interesting to hear. But then I also asked my aunt and my mom, who asked her cousin about my father's side of the family. Mm -hmm. And um they didn't really have much information from him, but okay. they understand that um, my father's parents, one was from Chicago and one was from Pennsylvania. So that was interesting. <laughs> Did you um, get any information at all about your family? Yeah. Do you I love know the, any history about your family? Well, I love the theme this week because it's forced me um, to pay attention to the stories I've been ignoring my entire life. And like really listening. Yeah, because, you know, some of the information seems conflicting and, you know, I don't know who Junebug is, which is something that's talked about in this book. Right. Everybody so got a Junebug. So many people had the same name that you gave people nicknames yeah. to identify them. It's funny because in the book they say you could be at a funeral and they'll be like, <laughs> so-and-so died and no one say anything. And they'll be like, and now Junebug is laid to rest. And people be like, that's Junebug in that casket. This is sad. <laughs> so, um... So I thought it'd be best to go to the source and I decided to call up my mom and see if she remembers anything. Now, she was born at the end of the civil rights movement. So she's past this point of the great migration. That's more my grandparents. But I thought she might know something about her parents and about that journey since she was born in the South. Both my parents were born um, my mom and dad in Mississippi and Arkansas, respectively. Oh, really? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I called up my mom. Hello. 
Hey, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Good. What you doing? Oh, just sitting at the table reading. <laughs> oh, did you expect my call? You sound very professional. <laughs> I do. Oh, well, that's how I like to sound. Thank you. I'm sorry, did I call Downson Abbey? I'm looking for my mama house. <laughs> well, you know why I'm calling. I was going to ask you some questions. Do you think you can answer some questions about life for me? Well, I'll try. Okay. Um, What year were you born? 1957. Oh, so you were born. You don't remember any of the civil rights movement, do you? A little. What do you remember? I just remember watching on television and seeing the marches with Martin Luther King. and You remember that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. How old were you when you moved to Evanston? You moved to Evanston first, yes. right? And you were like six? Right. I, was, I was six. Do you remember anything before you moved? Anything about life in Mississippi? Well, it was very simple for me. We lived on a farm. My dad was a sharecropper. And all I did was play all day long. <laughs> we had animals. We had a, a large garden. Yeah. And then um, in front of our house was a large field um, filled with cows. And what kind of sharecropping did Grandpa do? Like what? Well, they were picking cotton. They were. Grandma picked cotton also? Yes. Okay. And then my dad eventually worked for a sawmill. And you remember that? Yeah, cut down trees and, you know, Why did he stop working as a sharecropper? Because he could make more money. Okay. You never heard Grandpa called a boy or anything like that? Once. Once in the South. I heard um, the land that owner um, where we lived, he um, he did call my dad a boy. Mm -hmm. And I can remember being a child and being offended by that Mm -hmm. because I was thinking, my dad is not a boy. He's a man. Mm-hmm. So aside from these type of slights, you never felt like your life was threatened when you were growing up in the South. Well, not growing up. You were six when you moved or when you guys moved to Evanston and then to Milwaukee. Not at all. I was going to ask you, do you remember anything about living on the farm in um, Mississippi that stood out to you? I just remember the, the freedom that I had to play anywhere I, I wanted to go. I didn't feel any danger. No one had to watch over me. Yeah. And it was just a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, people were um, warm. They shared the things that they had. Everybody was poor, but whatever they had, they were willing to share. Mm-hmm. I remember that. But the closeness and the warmth that I felt from friends and family, it was a, it was a nice um, environment to start life in. Mm-hmm. We're reading this book um, for the podcast called Warmth of Other Sons, and it really deals with a Jim Crow era. And that's well, that's before your time. And no doubt most of the great migration had ended by the time you were even born. What made our family, what made your side of our family move to the north? They thought that they would be able to um, enjoy better opportunities, better housing. Did you already have family in the north? Yes, my uncles live there. Okay. What differences do you remember about growing up in the South and then moving to the North? I, I remember that um, the people weren't as laid back, of course. Right. And n- not as warm as I had experienced in the South. Cause you it were, was a little tougher. Would you ever move back to the South? Maybe. Yeah. For the warmer weather? Or? Yep. And I kind of like it. 
I kind of like a slow way of life and yeah. I like the open spaces. I was telling a story about um, a baby pig you had for our Charlotte's Web episode and it would follow you around the house like a little puppy. And then one day you came home and was eating bacon. Is that true? Am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> well, I don't remember eating the bacon part, but yeah, I did have a little white pig that I loved. Aww. And, and I had a little white dog that I loved and both of them would follow me around. See, that's the kind of life I had in the South. Yeah. But you did eventually eat your animals, not the dog, too, I hope. Because it grew up to be huge. <laughs> oh, the pig did. And so it, yes, and so, so it had, had no to be choice. sacrificed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it then, was sacrificed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. hopefully Grandma can share with me some of her story from that period. But I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Sure, her experience will be far greater than mine. I'll, I'll call you later. All right, little girl. Love you. Talk with you later. Okay. I love you too. Bye-bye. So yeah, that's my mom. So did you find um, as a family that you went back to the places where your family oh, was Oh, that's from? a good question. So um, Hickory Flat, Mississippi, where my mother's from, I never remember going there. But Park in Arkansas, where my father's from, we would go there frequently. And I remember my um, grandma living on what was like a sharecropper's land. I think they were still sharecropping um, like decades after Jim Crow and after even the civil rights movement. They were still renting out and working land that belonged to someone else. And they lived in um, like a one or two room like shack. And I remember using the bathroom in the middle of the night in a pot. And I didn't know. In a pot? Yeah, because it was too far from the outhouse to like send a kid. I woke up and had to go to the bathroom. And the outhouse, to me, and, and, and my kid mind, was miles and miles and <laughs> miles away in the dark. It was a darkness like I've never seen. So you can't send a little kid out into the dark at night. One, because they'll get lost. And two, because like snakes and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I had to go to the bathroom in a pot. Now we're all sleeping in one room divided by um, blankets. Right. Okay. Okay. And this is so let's say three, four, five people visiting my grandma. Let's say five or six people in one room. And I went, how old were you? But you were a kid. (laughs) Yeah. I was like maybe five, five or six. I remember this though. Because also peeing in a pot in a room full of people is crazy to a city child. And I'm sure a country child. I'm sure any child nowadays. But if you're accustomed to those things. It's not shocking. So I'm I'm thinking that um, the typical American child is no longer accustomed to those no. things. And so it's very awkward. And then I decided to go past number one because I <laughs> well, had that to was go my to the next bathroom. Question, so. okay. I mean, what time of night was it? Everybody mad. I didn't know. I didn't know this bucket was for specific functions. There was no sign. There was oh. no, sir. There was no. You're in the um, bathroom in your embarrassing moment. I feel like people <laughs> should have directed this city child. No, you pee in this pot. Yeah. So that's that's what I remember. Wow. So we did not return. I got to say, I asked that my grandmother return a lot. And my understanding was she may be returned once or twice. OK. It was not a thing. It wasn't a family thing for who us. Do, who was she returning to? Um, there was other family members. There down were there. still other mm-hmm. family members. There were still other family there. members down there. <laughs> now my mom, grandmother is an only child to her parents, mm-hmm. but there was still other family down there. Okay, and 
we just that wasn't a part of our life mm-hmm. um, to go down there and see that side. So I don't know um, country living in the South. Yeah. I don't know that life at all. So mm-hmm. that I found that um, very interesting. Um, so your family did make those journeys. Yeah. And would you go back today? No, because I don't have anyone to, I'm not close to anyone in the South anymore. Okay. Um, so even after my grandfather passed and my grandmother um, moved out of that country, working the land atmosphere uh-huh. into a more city for Park in Arkansas, where they're from, more city atmosphere, we would still go visit her. Um, and, you know, I remember sleeping in a bed with five cousins and playing outside till way past dark. And that sounds fun. that type of freedom. Yeah. yeah. As someone who was born in the 20th century, who wasn't under Jim Crow and was free to be with her family. That was a great time. Um, And people talking to you, strangers coming up to you and starting conversations. That's always been gross to me. Like, (laughs) please mind your business. Don't wave at me. Put your hand down. Truly a city girl. Yeah. Yeah. Truly Um, a city girl. Yeah, I remember those times and um, I would not go back now just because I don't have anyone really to go back to. And being married, we each have to take time out the year to see our parents and our my in-laws live in the South uh-huh. and then my mom lives in Arizona. So I wouldn't even have time to, right. mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I, um, and just going to just share this one thing. I happened to move to Georgia, um, when I finished with school. And so my daughter's family yeah. is from the South. So I did take her. But are they the though? South. Cause they're from like Atlanta. No, they're from Alabama. Oh, are they? Yeah. Look, let me, I think I know something. Yeah, okay. they're from Alabama. So I took her a couple, I mean, at least every year for at least five years. Okay. Um, To see her family in the South. Mm-hmm. And that was like very interesting because that was really my first introduction to the South South. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I'm a city girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I enjoy the quiet. Um, This is before cell phones, of course. I mean, that they were a big deal. But yeah, yeah. It, it's different down so there. So what was different? The, just the quietness? The quietness. The, no city life because they were really rural. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, yeah, they were they were rural. It was mm-hmm. just too quiet for me. I, mm-hmm. I need the city noises. It's unnerving, um, right? Yeah. There's so many animals. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Toads and frogs. Did you know that's not the same animal? <laughs> that's crazy. And the mosquitoes as big as your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and she would stay down there for a couple weeks at a well, a week to a couple weeks at a time, depending yeah. on the time of year. But oh, that's great for a kid. That was an experience. Um, I had to ask her what she thought about that. Mm-hmm. But that's it. So let's move along. And if you guys have any stories of either growing up in the South or visiting the South as a kid, share those with us because this oh. is a part one and part two, and we'd love to share your feedback. You can email us or DM us. We're at Lit Society Pod on our social media channels. That would be great. Let's take a quick break. Okay. Hi. Yes. Welcome back. Can you give us some Thank background? You. Welcome back yourself. No one ever welcomes me back from the break. All right, Kari. <laughs> can you give us some background on Isabel Wilkerson? I can. I can give you some context about Isabel and the book. So 
Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel Wilkerson was born in 1961 in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Her parents were um, part of the Great Migration from Georgia and Southern Virginia. First of all, she's very decorated, very educated, highly educated. She's the first black woman in the history of American journalism to win a Pulitzer Prize and the first black woman to win for individual reporting. She won that prize for her reporting as Chicago bureau chief of the New York Times. Oh, wow. Hey, Chicago. Specifically, her coverage of the 1993 Midwestern floods and her profile of a 10 year old boy who was responsible for his four siblings. I got to look. Wow. I don't. Oh, and that's part of the Midwest floods. Um, This was a profile she did in addition to the Midwest floods. Both works earned her the Pulitzer Prize. Okay. Okay. She's lectured at Harvard University. She served as Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton. Um, another Ivy League is in there. She served as a board member of the National Arts and Journalism Program at Columbia. Decorated. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she war- wrote Warmth after 15 years of research and writing. So this was not a book she rushed together. <laughs> this um, She's not a novelist. This nonfiction work is really something she poured her heart and soul into and did her research to back it up. Um, It was written in 2010 and it examines the three geographic routes that were commonly used by blacks leaving the southern states between 1915 and 1970, a time period known as the Great Migration. She interviewed more than a thousand people who made the migration from the south to the north and also western cities um, like in California. And yeah, that's that's Isabel Wilkerson. I also wanted to give a little like brief American history for those that might not know the journey. Thank you. I think that's an excellent idea. Is that okay? I absolutely do. Um, yeah, go ahead. Get started on okay. that. Okay. All right. Because some may not even know what Reconstruction is or Jim Crow or even sharecroppers. So. And let me just say this. I thought that was important to highlight, too, because I did write down what the definition was of sharecropping because yeah. I thought that was important. Me not having these books when I grew up. Yeah. This is helpful to me. Okay, cool. Even if it's helpful to no one else, I value it. You know who else could benefit from this? Kanye. So if you're someone who thinks (laughs) maybe like slavery was a choice and when you decided to stop being slaves, then you was free and everything was great. This is this is this is really what happened. Yeah. So slavery in America started in 1619 and it started the common story is that this privateer um, brought 20 African slaves ashore in the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. So 1619. Some historians have estimated that six to seven million enslaved people were imported to the New World during the 18th century alone. Seven million, one century alone. Um, The Civil War, it's what's widely accepted as what ended slavery. And that was fought from April 1861 to April 1865. Um, there were a lot of reasons for this war and people can go back and forth about it. It is true that um, the the biggest, most dividing conversation, though, around that war and what kind of brought it all to the head was the abolition of slavery, which the entire economy of the South was based on this idea of free labor. So um, is that part of the reason why they um, people say that it, it was also based on the economy? So let's take uh, let's break down the Civil War briefly without adding uh, humanity to it. <laughs> you want to okay. just talk money. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, if you want to keep up with the rest of the world, you cannot base your economic survival on a system that the rest of the world has um, 
absolved and, and really uh what am i trying abandoned yep. for the sake of not, not maybe because you know it's crazy wrong and maybe. violent and disgusting but also because there's more money in other avenues yeah there's more money in um industries are changing and and um, p- mankind is progressing in a way where if you are stuck on free labor, you actually hinder yourself mm-hmm. because you're stuck on this um, system that's dying and you're not keeping up with the progress of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really what it is. And any leader is going to want his nation to be progressive. Right. <clears throat> OK, so um, and then also America was like expanding west. So this idea of free labor in the South where Southerners didn't need to go West. <laughs> right. Cause you, you got free labor in the South. What I'm going to go West for also what I'm going to go North for uh, or East or any other what di- cardinal direction. <laughs> Cause the free labor is here. <laughs> so um, abolitionist movement and that Western expansion and all of that, that we said led to the civil war, 1861, to 1865. So the North was like, Hey, stop that slavery. And the South was like, no. And people died. Okay, so the Reconstruction began. Now, the Reconstruction, if you tell somebody, if I tell you, Alexis, hey, this um, economy that you've been basing your entire life on and, you know, you wrote Gone with the Wind and you think it's just great and asa massa usa usa and you don't want to give it up and I tell you, you have to give it up. I'm going to have to really make you give it up. You're going to have to make me. (laughs) Because I so, see nothing but benefits to it. And that's the reconstruction I get period. all the money. You're going to have to fight me. Mm-hmm. And so they did. And But then also they um, put in um, soldiers and people to really make sure the South behaved. That was the idea of the reconstruction period. And that's from 1865 to 1877. It's this really turbulent era, fo- era following the Civil War where Southern states who conceded. Is that the right word? Yep. From the nation mm-hmm. had to be brought back in, forgiven, and then also told what to do. It's real awkward. Um, and the South eventually was like, are y'all done? Because we still going to do what we want to do. And we'll just call it something else. <laughs> and also, Each you know, story. we got a clan now. And so we're going to we going to say that we got to protect our interests as white people and protect white supremacy. So we're going to fight anybody black, white, brown who gets in our way. Yeah. And the North was eventually like, look, we got industries, we got money to make. And all y'all really doing is wasting our time and our money. And we don't like black people either, but you don't see us. Putting them in chains <laughs> yeah, and stuff and just making act them work civilized. in the field. <laughs> and the South was like, no. And so the North was like, well, forget this. We going to make the money. And so they left. Okay, so now you have generations of black Americans left over from slavery and a group of white people who are the descendants of those that seceded from the United States and they are rancorous. They're angry. Their antebellum lifestyle has dissolved. It seems like overnight. And so when the Northerners are pushed out, reconstruction ends, Jim Crow comes in. Um, this is yeah. a, like a racist jambalaya. So you have Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws were um, laws that separated the races by not just black or white, but it, it also involved a caste system. What I say, jambalaya. So yeah, if you were darker, you had maybe less rights in certain atmospheres than if you were a lighter black. And then within whites, how good of a white were you? Were you a good Protestant white? Were you white Anglo-Saxon Protestant? Or were you dabbling in Catholicism? Yeah. And so wow. it was this system to really make everyone fall in line. 
and sharecropping, a, a work a lot of black people can trace their um, people to after slavery, is a type of farming in which families rent small plots of land from a landowner in return for a portion of their crop. So let's say you're the planter, you're the white man, I'm your sharecropper. I never own land. I just get to work your land and I pay you to get to work it. This type of system keeps me subservient to yeah, you mm-hmm. and it ensures that my generation, my children never inherit anything and that my people never become successful within this system. Right. Because you're either left owing or what is it? You break even. They, it's almost like they never have to pay you if they don't feel like it that year. It's not almost like that. You're absolutely right. It's like that. And a good planter, someone that was considered fair would be someone that broke even. So I, you don't even pay me. And the pay is annual. So at the end of the annual. year, we have to have a discussion about how much is owed. And you might charge me for things like coffee and tobacco and or fertilizer or seed. <laughs> right. Whatever you don't want to pay for, you might ask it from me. During the Great Depression, it's interesting, um, a lot of landowners weren't necessarily rich because the North at this time is making a good, um, the lion's share of the money. And a lot of landowners in their environment are just getting by. A lot of these white people feel like yeah. we are just mm-hmm. getting by. We're poor, too. So right, during the Depression, this. the landowner might go without a car, but the sharecropper goes without shoes. He goes without food. Okay. after the abolition of slavery and after the troops from the north were forced out of the south, the south instituted this caste system and ignored even amendments that granted blacks rights, Mm -hmm. such as suffrage. Now, this is something I was ignorant about. I had no idea that um, it was already uh, uh, roots were already made to ensure the black vote. And the south was just like, no, (laughs) let's all calm down. It's not going to happen. They don't have a voice here. So politicians began campaigning on platforms that promised violence against Negroes. Lynchings were publicized in papers. White people brought their toddlers to watch black people be burned alive. There's one instance, um, Jesse Washington, who was burned alive in Waco, Texas. 15,000 white men, women and children gathered to watch him be burned alive while chanting, burn, burn, burn. One man brought his toddler claiming, my son can't learn too young. This is a time of insane violence. From 1889 to 1929, someone was lynched or burned alive every four days for alleged crimes such as boasting or trying to act like a white person. So the reason why Jim Crow was so disgusting and so harmful to everyone involved went past, though, this violence and um, like animal list. Well, even animals don't treat each other like this. I don't know what to call this besides like demonic. Right. Um, but it also ruined this fragile interdependence that the races had upon each other. So there would be white people who never even touched a black person, never shook right. a black man's hand, never had to interact with a, a black person and vice versa. This created like a feeling of they're the aliens or they're the other in both races. Yeah, sure. And it just, you know, bred more and more racism. Um, so no doubt you can understand why so many people fled this Jim Crow South. Um, and that fleeing is called the Great Migration. What is the Great Migration? <clears throat> this book calls it the greatest underreporting story of the 20th century. 
because over six decades, six million black settlers left the land of their forefathers in search of peace and in every other corner of the nation. So unlike people from Italy and Ireland who were coming through um, and maybe passing through New York, these are so-called citizens of America who were migrating within the country because they weren't treated like citizens and they were looking for the, the rights um, owed to them as citizens of the United States. And then what kind of ended this need to travel was the, the civil rights movement. So the civil rights movement was a struggle for social justice that took place mainly between 1950 and 1960s. Um, that's the end of this is where my mom was born. So she remembers them marching on television, mm-hmm. but she was a child. So there is a generation of people who remember the abolition of slavery. They remember sharecropping Jim Crow and they remember the civil rights movement. And that's kind of the generation we're going to discuss in this book. Yeah, That's great. And that's my overly long context. So why don't we now have your brief synopsis? Okay. And because the context was so long, I'm going to keep the synopsis very, very brief. Okay. The Warmth of Other Suns is a story of America's great migration told through the eyes of three strangers. What were your first thoughts of the book, Alexis? You know, um, I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't heard the term great migration. I did know um, people, a lot of people came from the South, but I didn't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was interested to dive into this ginormous book. (laughs) And get <laughs> yeah, and get started learning some things. So I felt like it was going to be a learning experience for me. How about you? What were your first thoughts? So this is where I want to shame you for not knowing what the Great Migration was, or pretending you never heard of it. Feel free, I ain't mad. So I too forgot what it was, <laughs> <laughs> and I was talking to my Mexican husband about a book that we're reading for the podcast, and the book is so interesting because it really details this time period and I told him when six million people over and he goes oh you're talking about the great migration why he do that and I was just disgusted I haven't mm-hmm. seen him since <laughs> <laughs> see, <laughs> you, to see, bad rubbish. you see people are always trying to shame you yeah so obviously I mean when I was in school I loved history but opening this book up and reading it it felt like a textbook and I, my mind was not in it To begin with, I have to say, so my first thoughts were like, well, this is going to be grueling. (laughs) I don't listen to these stories in my own family. Now I got to listen to somebody else's family. But of course, that all changed. You know, I didn't appreciate history until college. So I was like hating history. That's why I don't know. (laughs) Well, I have no excuse because I loved it. Mm -mm, And this is my history. I should really know. Yeah, I'm sorry. Anyway. So thanks for that. I appreciate you sharing that detailed information. Mm -hmm. So are we ready to dive into part one of our book? We are. Deep dive into warmth of other suns. Yeah. And we're going to give all the spoilers that are to be given. (laughs) Well, it's nonfiction. But yeah, we're going to spoil. Yeah, yeah, sure. There are some stories in here. Yeah, but I have have to to say us telling you, we, we cannot even touch on the bulk of this book. So we're Mm-mm. not spoiling anything for you. We, I'm going to do my best to talk about these three strangers and the common threads between all of their lives that made them move to the North. But when you read it, you're going to find brand new threads. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. 
So yeah, we're ready. Let's we're gonna. Started. This book is divided into five parts. We're gonna go over part one through three this episode, and part four and five next episode. It's the first time we did this. Yeah, I think we should do it more often. <laughs> okay, only when the book is thick. Wait, this no, let's do for it for us. like a hundred page books. That'll be great. <laughs> we should have did it for Charlotte's Web. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> I believe in that. Okay. A synopsis of Warmth of Other Suns by the Lit Society podcast. <laughs> so, The Warmth of Other Suns is a book that follows three strangers. Ida May, she's the only woman in this three folk posse. She currently lives in Chicago. Hey! Hey! <laughs> but she's originally from Mississippi. Then there's George Swanson Starling. He lives in Harlem. He's handsome, thin, widower. But he's Keek originally came from Georgia, Florida border, Eustace, Florida. Robert Joseph Pershing Foster. He's the last gentleman. Um, he currently lives in Los Angeles or when this book was written, he did. But he is from the Louisiana area, right? Like Louisiana, Pershing? Atlanta, a little bit of Nashville. Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ladies first, part one, Ida May. I'm going to talk a little bit about their lives growing up. Now, throughout this book, you follow their paths simultaneously. Um, but I thought it might help us get an idea more of what they went through if I just take them one by one. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with Ida Mae. She's the lady. She grew up in a um, small town in Mississippi, like my mom. Like my mom, her, may, her name is May Ida, but she thought May sounded country. <laughs> my mom is May Joyce. And so she just goes by Ida or Ida May. Ida my mom may. just goes by Joyce. Um, she went to a one-room school. Her father died of what everyone thought was like a death caused by diabetes. But when she touched him, remember she said he yeah. still felt warm. Yeah. Nowadays, we can guess that he was probably just in a coma when yeah. they buried him. That's yeah, crazy. but, you know, no matter what race you were, but especially if you were black, there was no doctor to right. really solidify whatever diagnosis you were given. Right. Few doctors made the journey out into where the Negroes lived. Um, sometimes you would have to meet them halfway and people didn't really have. Can you believe it? Yeah, the yeah. money or um, situation to be able to do that, especially if they're on their deathbed. Right. So um, now Ida May shares an anecdote of when she was in school and she misspelled Philadelphia and her teacher who Ooh. had one leg beat her for it. And she went out to him after class and she said, you beat me because I don't have a daddy. If I had a daddy, you wouldn't have beat me. Mm -hmm. And he never beat her again. So Adam May's a tough cookie is what we trying to tell you. Ain't she? Um, I don't think she was the youngest, but she was maybe like second youngest or maybe she was the youngest in a um, household family. of girls. Mm -hmm. And when the guys came courting, she was like 15 and they yeah, were no, like in her 20s. Like the second oldest. <laughs> oh, is so that there right? were two younger than her. And her mom wasn't having it. Her mom thought she was too young to be dating when these guys came yeah, around. I, so I agree with her mom. Mm -hmm. But she was married at 16 years old to a very stern young man in his 20s named George. Sticking with Ida Mae, we're going to travel to the year 1929, Mississippi. She's married now. Um, her and her husband, when she was 16, or her husband took her to live in a cabin that rained as much inside as it did out. <laughs> uh, they were sharecroppers picking cotton. Ed Pearson was considered a decent boss. He's the white landowner. He took half of what the black people produced and from their portion charged them for things like fertilizer and seed. 
So the things he didn't want to pay for. The sharecroppers in those days owned the planters. I'm sorry, owed the planters. The planters owed the merchants and the merchants owed the banks who were more concerned with their business in the north where the real money was anyway. Interesting. So that's kind of the system that kept everyone down. Mm -hmm. um, the sharecroppers would pick cotton from sunup to darkness in 100 plus heat. People would hallucinate under the heat and the work. Their backs would give out and their hands would cramp from the repetition. Now, I feel like Ida Mae is letting us know, even at that time, she wasn't about that work. That's what she said. That is <laughs> she what she said. said. You know, her knees would give out and she would end up just laying down. <laughs> Wait, didn't the boss say she don't do no work? Yeah, the planter came up to her husband was like, that woman you got don't work, do she? <laughs> it's such a um, First of all, what do you do, Mr. Planter? But anyway. Okay. Um, she couldn't afford dresses. She um, out of made out of the cotton that she picked. Instead, she wore dresses made of burlap flower sacks. Um, during the Depression of 1929, the planter went without a new car, as we said, and the sharecropper went without shoes. That was the situation for her family, even right. with a, a good planter or a good boss. Um, under these situations, you can understand that Ida miscarried. She later had a girl, then another. The second died from a poison fruit because she had to leave the child, both children, under a tree while she continued to pick cotton and they got a hold of some fruit, ate it, and one of the children died. Mm -hmm. That stuck with her. She decided never again to leave her children come what may. Mm -hmm. Even animals don't leave their children, she thought. Um, she then had a boy. He had seizures. So <laughs> to cure him of it, she threw all his stuff in the fire, like all oh, his clothes. And daddy had brought him shoes. Yeah, and it was that was a big deal. That was a big deal. <laughs> but she was like, oh, well. And you know what? He never had a seizure again. And she felt like that was the remedy. <laughs> yep. The awakening. Now is the time when Ida May decides she's going to leave the South. We're in 1937 now, Chickasaw County, Mississippi. We didn't really touch on it before. And I'm wondering if I should now... Just the extent uh, and the unexpected absurdity of the violence against black people at this time. If you were suspected of anything, uh, I mean, really anything, the consequences, yeah, would, would be beyond death in some cases. And, you know, just to give us a correct backdrop of what's going on, I am going to travel to Florida briefly. 1934, October, Mariana, Florida. Claude Neal, 23-year-old farmhand, was accused of rape and murder of a 20-year-old white woman named Lola. Claude Neal was arrested, and more than 300 Ugh. armed men went searching for him. Authorities moved him to avoid the mob. He was finally moved to Alabama. The lynching party went to Alabama, got him, and brought him back to Florida. They stormed the jail and took him back to Mariana. The lynching time was set and publicized. It was set for, like, I think six o'clock so that everyone could be off work All and it right. could be convenient for everyone mm -hmm, to come see mm -hmm. it. Before the execution, he was taken to the woods and tortured by a committee of six men. The committee tortured him for hours. He was castrated and forced to eat the severed body parts. They made him say that he liked it. A bystander threw up. During this ritual, they, caught off, they cut off several body parts um, and burned him. They raised and lowered his body in hanging until he died. His body never made the lynching. They killed him. His nude body was tied to the back of a car and dragged through town so that men, women, and children could stab him with sticks. Finally, they hung his dismembered body. Families connected, collected parts as souvenirs. 
postcards were oh sold mm. uh-huh, with images of, of his body and parts of his body. The Florida governor had to call in the National Guard to stop the white mob um, who were hungry for more blood and more black bodies. They were going into the black part of town and burning homes, um, trying to kill more people. No one was ever charged in Neil's death, of course, or spent a day in prison for it. Right. It was later discovered that Neil and the girl who they, who had known each other, they had lived across the street from each other. Um, they were probably lovers and her family may have killed her because of the shame that it brought to them. And this is one of the main reasons why some come to this conclusion is because the summer after Neil was lynched, the girl's father was convicted to, he was convicted to five years in prison for attempting to murder his niece because he suspected that she or her side of the family were the cause of his daughter's death. It, it, this is also the guy that said, I was supposed to, I was supposed to get first stab at him essentially yeah so the dad um was so angry that he wasn't there for the lynching that he shot the dead body i think in the head when they brought it out to town on the back of a car so mm-hmm. folks want to leave the, folks want to leave why though why why, why the, would you want to make good to us no not actually this is cr- not at all yeah so Back to Ida May, 1937, Chickasaw County, Mississippi. In the middle of the night, a small mob of men arrived to Ida May's home with chains looking for one of her relatives. This is scary. She's at home alone with her children. Um, her husband is still in town with business. He's driving back late. So she's there by herself with her family. And a group of white men are at her door with chains, including the planter, who is the boss of the sharecroppers. Um, they suspect her relative, who was a nephew, I think, of her husband's, mm-hmm. of stealing mm-hmm. because a woman nearby, a white woman, yep. had lost like two turkeys. <laughs> right. Two turkeys, poultry. Uh-huh. Live turkeys. Where they at? This man must have stolen them. This black man. Go get them. Do what you will to them. They caught the relative sneaking out of Ida May's back door. She didn't even she know he did was not there. No, he was there. She was sleeping. And they beat, they took him to the woods, beat him with chains nearly to death. Turns out this quote unquote stolen goods weren't stolen after all. The they turkeys was back. like living their life and they came back eventually they like good walk. Good walk. No apology, no nothing. Good walk. Good walk. Yeah. Okay. You know turkeys. I didn't know they, they was did at that. the club. Okay. What do you call a turkey club? I don't know. Delicious. So they was at Club Delicious. <laughs> and they came on back and her husband decided then and there, oh, this will be the last crop you and I ever pick. 1937. Traveling ain't easy. They're going to give up everything they know to leave this hostile <laughs> They justify whatever. They yeah. justify very much so. Breaking away, sticking with Ida May, October 1937. At this time, fewer than one out of five sharecroppers ever saw a profit at the end of the year. Of the few who got anything, their pay came to between $30 and $50 in the 1930s for a year of hard toil in the field, according to a leading Yale anthropologist of the era. The remaining 80% either broke even, meaning they got nothing or stayed in debt, which meant they were as a bound to the planter as a slave to his master. Yeah. So can I just say, mm-hmm. um, I was trying to figure out what the, the pay scale was from here. Please. And, and I was seeing things like 
$474 to $1780 um, in like 1935, maybe. So the idea that they were only getting $30 and some nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So maybe like $1,000 to $2,000 a year, according to our currency today. Right. Right. Okay. They were getting nothing. Some people would work a backbreaking year um, year in the fields. 100 plus heat. Mm -hmm. And not bring home one cent but a debt. Yeah. And the idea is that you could at least try to live with the um, amount given to you. So you couldn't you couldn't sell anything you had in the market, but you could give it to the white landowner and he could could sell sell it it for you in the market. And then maybe you can get food for your family that way. Maybe, maybe whatever. Who has the time to care? Um, so, um, her husband, George went to settle things with the planter, knowing this, knowing he could walk away with nothing or worse, a debt. And if he was caught fleeing from that debt, who knows the repercussions, right? Despite that, he went into that meeting, giving no indication that he was going to pick up his family and leave for the north. George wanted to settle with Mr. Ed as soon as possible and prepare to go see him. Ida Mae worried whenever George went out. George, be careful, she said. I ain't gonna be careful. I ain't done nothing to him. George went up to Mr. Ed like it was any other end of the season settlement. He gave no indication that it was his fervent hope never to see him again in life or ever again to set foot in the state of Mississippi. He looked over the list of credits and debits Mr. Ed had tallied. The bells of cotton he and Ida Mae had gathered, the seed and cornmeal they had consumed. It didn't matter what he thought of it. He couldn't dispute it no matter what it said. At the bottom of the page was a figure that showed he had a few dollars coming to him for a year's worth of labor. It was not much, but it was more than many sharecroppers got. Fewer than one out of five sharecroppers ever saw a profit at the end of the year. The remaining 80% either broke even, meaning they got nothing, or stayed in debt, which meant they were as bound to the planter as a slave was to his master. There was no place to appeal. George did the math in his head and saw that Along with what he had managed to save up to this day, it was enough for four tickets north on the Illinois Central Railroad. George could have left after settlement without saying a word. It was a risk to say too much. The planner could rescind the settlement, say he misfigured, turn a credit into a debit, take back the money, evict the family, or whip the sharecropper on the spot, or worse. Some sharecroppers, knowing they might not get paid anyway, fled from the field right in mid-hoe on the first thing going north. Okay, and that is Ida Mae's story. That is why Ida Mae left, um, and they eventually left for Milwaukee. Her husband went to settle things with the planner, as you read, um, who was always decent to them for a white man at the time. And at the last moment, her husband decided to tell the planner that they're leaving for Milwaukee. He didn't stop them. So we can leave that cliffhanger. Yeah. And they left by train. Part two. George Swanson Starling. George. <laughs> George is the one that lives in Harlem. He's handsome, thin widower. Um, he lived in Harlem when this book was written 
but she spoke to him in 1996. Right. He came from Georgia, Florida border, Eustis, Florida. He left all he knew because he would have died had he stayed. This is the little right, right. Yeah, little tidbit we're giving about George at the beginning of the book without knowing what that means. Mm -hmm. You want to know what it means? I'll tell you. Get into it. Yeah. So George Swanson Starling. Let's talk about George's family a little bit. His grandfather was a pistol. His grandfather, John, who he once killed a planter who beat him with a horse whip. Lord have mercy. Yeah. So this planter would like come into the field and just beat his men relentlessly. Right. And they just like killed him one day and then like ran away and went Whoa. to another farm. <laughs> also, he once kicked a cat into a fire for rubbing against him. <laughs> John is like, he's hard. He's right? not playing. Mm -mm. He's not interested in what they talking about. He would wake up his grandchildren by putting cotton in between their toes and lighting it. This man is like statistic. Okay. Again, this is George's grandfather. <laughs> he ain't no joke. He ain't playing. But guess what? He's got a little soft spot in his heart. And guess who it's for? George. It's for George. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Each year, his grandfather would um, be cheated by the planter. And the planter would say, we broke even, boy. You don't owe me nothing. And I don't owe you nothing. And there was one year where George's grandfather, John, stood up and said, great. Then that barrel of cotton that I've been hiding, I can go sell that and get some shoes for my kids. And the planter said, oh, man, now I got to redo the books. Mm -hmm. uh, one of George's uncles learned to read and count as a child. And when the planter tried to cheat his mom, the uncle spoke up. The planter had him whipped and threatened his life. The parents had to send the boy away. It was not spoken of again. This is just such a violent yeah time period and this is where george grew up mm -hmm. um all the more reason to leave while the church people would be worshiping um george and his friends would climb the tree and pick a fruit that was yeah. ripe and one day a man caught him and said i'm gonna tell your father now this was a serious threat because black parents much like today believed in capital punishment <laughs> Yeah, we but did. unlike today, they had a really great reason. No, I mean, they probably have a reason now. I don't know. Hey, I don't know. I'm just glad I ain't getting beat no more. But the idea was blacks were forced to train their children to be sub uh, subservient. Yes. Because if I don't beat you as a child and you grow up and you start talking back to white people, they will kill you in the most disturbing way possible. Yeah. So I have to prepare you for this life under Jim Crow. And there's nothing that the parents can do to protect you. Yeah. So they had to do what they did. And this type of there's nothing that the parents can do. So the parents can't do anything to protect their children from white people. And there's nothing a husband can do to protect his, his wife, wife from white people. So that type of I got to make you be subservient and get you in line or they're going to get you in line and they don't love you. That carried through to um, husband and wife re relationships. Absolutely. Big George's little sister. Um, oh. <clears throat> and big George was George's father. She was beautiful. She was married to a jealous man named Sambo. Sambo would threaten her life all the time for what he considered to be flirting. Yeah. And she would laugh because he talked like that all the time and she was fine and she wasn't worried about him. <laughs> She was not so, worried. One day Sambo goes to his brother-in-law and goes, hey, I need some bullets to shoot a rabbit. And so he gave it to him and he heard a shot in the forest. And George goes, I think Sambo's got a rabbit. No, Sambo had George's little sister and he shot her. 
um, with his brother-in-law's own bullets. Right. So um, amidst all of this, (laughs) Florida was like another country, as we said before. That Claude O'Neill lynching, that was in Mariana, Florida. Um, Little George, growing up in all this, was book smart and naturally gifted. So he was valedictorian of his vocational school, which only had six seniors, but still. And he went to college, but his father pulled him out after two years because the thing was, no one was going to college. And yes, this boy is gifted. And yes, he has a great brain. But but a lot of people felt like they were doing good without college. So you're wasting your money. Yep. And then also, who do you think you are sending your son to college? A little Uppity bit of jealousy white. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you starting to act like white people. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was a community of people that weren't pursuing education. Or if they did, if they were in college, they would fail at least one or two classes. George's success was that he didn't fail any classes. Yeah, he was exceptional. He was truly exceptional, exceptional <laughs> in his schooling. So he wanted to continue that. Exactly. To get his father back for taking him out of school, he did what any normal person would do. <laughs> he married a girl his father didn't like. <laughs> he, t- he went up to her house and said, hey, come on. And she said, okay, where are we going? Hey, just get in the car, okay? He, and heard he no took details. her to the courthouse and yeah, he got married. Mm-hmm. And she, said, let's keep she it a wore secret. what she was wearing and he wore whatever he had on. And let's keep it a secret. Exactly. Um, with a new wife... 1939 now, Eustace, Florida. He was forced to pick citrus like the men he was more educated than. So he would look down on those instead of picking cotton. They, the thing in Eustace, Florida was to pick citrus. And he would look down on those um, sh- not really sharecroppers. They were just pickers. Right. The work was hard and it was dangerous. It was life threatening even at the time. So, of course, um, workers were cheated out of their w- wages. Yeah. Eventually, the Depression came and black work became invaluable because there wasn't nobody else to work it. George Swanson, 1941, Eustis, Florida. Pearl Harbor hits. December 7th, 1941, the U.S. was joining the war. A factory that made cars in Detroit was making planes for the effort. And George was like, well, I'm sick of picking citrus. So I'm going to go up to Detroit and make me some dollars with this plane manufacturer right, get some money but sunday june 20th 1943 a fight broke out between several hundred white and black men both angered because of alleged violence against their women so what you do to black women what you do to white women less fight in detroit mm-hmm. both rumors were proven untrue but that didn't matter at the time it was time to fight so one of the worst riots ever seen in the u.s history this is called um, in U.S. history, it's it marked a turning point in American race rela- relations. Black people fought back as earnestly as whites. Blacks looted businesses they perceived as exploiting them, white businesses. And it went on for almost a week. Thirty four people died. The municipal hospital admitted riot victims at the rate of one per minute. Oh, so eventually George is like, oh, it's crazy in the north. I'm out of here. Yeah. So he went back to the south, but he went back having seen what it's like, even in this mob mentality, having seen what life can be like with the veil of Jim Crow lifted and he wasn't going back. He was like, he went back to the South and he was like, Hey, the um, tree owners are cheating us of our wages. We're going to negotiate. Basically he was forming a union. Right. And George was living when he was in Detroit, his experience was 
equality with these white men. Yeah, I mean, he could talk some... to them man to man. Yeah. And that was like newfound. I mean, yeah, that was a feeling. Mm-hmm. How could you want to change that? Go right. back to something that treats to you yes, like garbage. Master. Right. And, and he the thing is, you, you didn't have to just be respectful. I think you and I understand the need to be respectful to people in authority right. to a point. But in the South under Jim Crow, you had to be subservient. This is a yes, yeah. a massa and never speaking. If you were more educated and could speak better than the white person you were speaking to having to dumb yourself down so that they felt as tall as they needed to feel. Right. And he was done with that. He walked differently. Now he spoke differently. He'd been in an environment where he could be himself, where he could be a man and there was no going back. So like we said, he began negotiating wages for the pickers with the white man basically forming a union. And this behavior scared both black pickers and angered white landowners. A lynching was being organized behind his back. He caught wind of it and left the South. Let's move on. Lastly, Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, 1996 Los Angeles, an accomplished man, once an army captain and surgeon, now a gambler. But he's not a gambler like he penniless. He just gambled like because it's like something. He's like Charles Barkley without like the uh, controversy. <laughs> it's not something to do. He's the color of strong coffee with waves in his hair. He came from Monroe, Louisiana. And his name, Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, is Pershing. He goes by Pershing. Pershing. His father. I like it. (laughs) His parents were both learned people. His father was the principal of a local colored high school, paid only slightly better than the servants in town, but still principal of a colored high school. And his mom was a teacher. Both were college graduates. That's huge, um, especially for that time. They were making 43% of what white educators made um, at that time. And this was published in the papers for all to see. Yeah. So the idea was, we're going to step on your necks and let you know we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So the disparities between wealth amongst the races were solidified, um, not just in payroll, but for example, when a fire broke out at the colored school's basement, the white citizens refused to pay for even a new desk. The colored parents already strapped for cash had to pay for it. Whites didn't see education's place in the God-given role of servitude of black people to white people anyway. Yeah, they didn't see any need for a Negro to be educated. Mm -hmm. It was a waste. It wasn't worth any money. So they weren't going to contribute to the rebuilding of the school. What for? Right. But Pershing, like we said, was raised amongst learned people. They did have a feeling of pride, like healthy pride for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely go with that. And that's where Pershing came from. So one night while he was walking, a car approached him. It was a white man asking Pershing, hey, can you give me a clean colored girl? So this is a tricky situation because you could say, "Uh, sure. And what? I don't know. Lead him to someone he'd probably force himself on. You could say no and risk a lynching. This is what Pershing chose to do. He said, listen. I tell you what, you get your mama for me and I'll go get you one. (laughs) And then he ran. He figured he knew the area better than this white man. And the white man ain't get away. And the white man never caught him. him. (laughs) The white man ain't coming for him. him. Mm -hmm. So that's Pershing. Um, Following Pershing, um, still within Monroe, Louisiana, let's go to 1935. And his view of his future has changed when he went to Morehouse. 
Surrounded by black people who were etching their own identity in the world, professionals, doctors and lawyers with money and big homes, um, like black society. Yeah. Yeah. The he, upper echelon of black society. They yeah. were in a community separated from everybody else and everything else was going on in the world. And he vowed then to never return to Jim Crow to any Jim Crow backwoods town, as he put it. He began dating the daughter of Rufus Clement, president of Atlanta University, which was grad school for Morehouse and Spelman. Rufus Clement was a man who worked himself from bellhop to head of the most prestigious black university in the South. He was also famous for a fight he had with W.E.B. Du Bois. Ain't that cool? Who yeah. was you fighting with, Daddy? Oh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. And he yeah. got him... Um Kicked out kind of? Yeah, he or did. Or made it the university. Mm-hmm. No, he did. Yeah, it actually isn't seen as that cool, I guess, in the history. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, now in his heart, Pershing wants to work in show business in California because yeah. he like, he I'm cute. Star. People like looking at me <laughs> and I like being looked at. He want to be a star. But things were expected of him. Mm-hmm. So he becomes a doctor. 1941, Atlanta. He was completely in the bourgeois world of his girlfriend's father, who rubbed elbows with the likes of Eisenhower and the Rockefellers. They were colored royalty in the South. He was married on the anniversary of his soon-to-be-in-law's wedding. (laughs) It was grand and beautiful. Yeah. Afterwards, Alice went to Juilliard to study music for a year. Listen, (laughs) these were accomplished black people. Can we say accomplished? Okay. Julie, I've year study music. Mm -hmm. And he went to Nashville for graduate studies in medicine. When Alice returned from her school, it was decided that she stay with her parents who had a tight grip on her life and vicariously his life. Yeah. I mean, they was married on his in-laws anniversary. So, you know, but she stayed with her parents and only made sense while he finished school. It made sense, right? And she visited when possible and also managed to get pregnant twice. Twice, two timers. Them visits were eventful. (laughs) (laughs) She bore two little girls. Pershing saw his brother become a backwoods colored surgeon in the South, not being able to follow his patients into the operating room, into the hospitals. And Pershing didn't want that life. So he joined the war effort, Korean War. He was based in Austria. We should also say that there was a moment when he tasted that life. When he decided to do some calls with his brother yep. and there was a woman, remember, who was in the middle of birth. Oh, yeah. Lessons learned. And he had, you know, all of his book knowledge and he went to help with the birth. He was the doctor in charge of it. And he was fiddling around and poking <laughs> stuff. And she said, move. She knew he would know what he's doing. She came off the table, squatted down and said, OK, catch it. <laughs> And the baby came on up out of her and he caught it. And but he that, learned some lessons from that. That taught him that no amount of education can replace what a woman knows of her own body. You need to listen to the patient, mm-hmm. you know? So Beautiful. that followed him. Um, so he's based in Austria. This was the first time he's based in Austria. This is the first time he's seen life beyond Jim Crow. And he's respected here for his skill as a doctor and treated with respect by both black and white men. But as Southern commanding officers arrive, Persian is thrust back into that caste system all the way in Europe. Can you believe it? No. He's forced out of his own labor rooms, out of surgeries. There is one moment, though, when a doctor, when a patient has stopped pushing 
and the doctor doesn't know what to do. And so he asks all the other doctors for advice. And then finally he makes his way to Pershing like, hey, Negro doctor, what you think? Right. And Pershing's like, her uterus is tired. Uh, do a glucose drip and she'll be able to push again. Well, this worked. He saved that white woman from a C-section at the hands of the doctor. The mom later kisses him in front of everyone at a dinner party. Shocking. Like, you saved me from a C-section. I'm going to kiss you, black man. Mm -hmm. And then people kind of eased up a little bit. Just a little bit. And got used to the idea of a black doctor. Mm -hmm. Insert eye roll here. I know. (laughs) For his service, Pershing earned a place of esteem and authority. He won awards for his medical skills, but it rendered him no further ahead at home in the South. So other doctors, when they returned from war, could use that experience to move ahead. Right. Under Jim Crow, there was no opportunity for that type of um, upward mobility for Pershing. Right. He could do all of that there, save lives in the war. (laughs) couldn't come home and do anything. On top of that, his father-in-law was like the head of his family. His daughters were used to growing up in that big mansion. (laughs) They barely knew him. Yeah. They barely knew Pershing. They knew granddaddy, rich granddaddy who got us everything. And we're going to be well-behaved Southern Bells. And life is great. (laughs) We should form a band, Destiny's Child. And then um, (laughs) Pershing comes home and is like, that's enough of this. Yeah, I'm not doing this. We (laughs) need to go. This is my children. This is my wife. And also, I'm sick of the white man. Because even the good ones didn't necessarily realize the kind of pressure that a man like Pershing was under under Jim Crow South, like the shopkeeper. There was a shop that him and his family had went to for years and the shopkeeper started to just see him as a person. So when Pershing walked in one day, all decorated from the army, a little awkward interaction began between him and the store owner. Pershing was grown up now. He was in uniform with his captain's bars and medical caduceus. The storekeeper noticed and asked what he was going to do when he got out of the army. Well, I'm going to go into practice, private practice, Pershing said. Are you going to come here with your brother? No, I'm going to California and start my practice there when I get out of Fort Polk, and this is what I plan to do. What's wrong with St. Francis? Pershing shook his head. The man had lived there since before Pershing was born and a central fact of colored people's existence hadn't registered after all these years. You know that colored surgeons can't operate at St. Francis, Mr. Mesa? The man looked startled and caught himself. White only and colored only signs were all over town, but the storekeeper had not thought about how segregation applied to the hospital. The storekeeper had watched Pershing grow up into an upstanding young man and had known the Fosters for years. For a split second, the storekeeper seemed to see Pershing as no different than any other bright young physician. But Pershing's words brought him back to reality. The rest of the white world did not see Pershing the way the storekeeper did, and that gave the storekeeper an uncomfortable glimpse of the burdens on one of his best customers. There was a moment of awkwardness between the two men, and as the realization hit the storekeeper, the truth hit Pershing too. He stepped outside himself and considered the absurdity that he was doing surgery for the United States Army and couldn't operate in his own hometown. The man tried to recover, offer advice and encouragement. Well, why don't you 
build a hospital, you and your brother. Mr. Mesa, do you realize that we are doctors and not businessmen? The cost of building a hospital and operating one would be astronomical. There was very little to say after that. Even the storekeeper could see the impossibility of the situation. He wished Pershing well in whatever he did, and Pershing went on his way. Mr. Macer had meant well. Still, it made no sense to Pershing that one set of people could be in a cage and the other people outside couldn't see the bars. So Pershing decides to take his family to Florida. As we can see during this time, America is changing. First, the South seemed proud to let the blacks go. They would say, great, as the North gets blacker, the South gets wider. <laughs> but then reality hit yeah. and a humbling ensued where they realized that without the blacks, there was no workforce. What right. would they do? A question was posed in the South Carolina newspaper, in a South Carolina newspaper. If you knew you could be lynched by mistake, would you remain in South Carolina? Finally, um, white people are having to really look at Jim Crow for what it was. And ask themselves, would I stay? Put yourselves in a black person's shoes. Can you do that? If you want to keep your workforce that you pay in pennies. But it was a, actually a point in here where they were fighting to keep the people there. I mean, literally fighting and killing them, right? So um, people leaving the South were treated like fugitives. Yeah. And a fugitive can be prosecuted, absolutely made an example of. Right. Local authorities tried to cut off information about the North from reaching the South. The biggest paper spreading that information was the Chicago Defender. It was confiscated. Um, they began outright treating migrants like criminals, tearing up their train tickets, diverting their routes, right. even arresting them. Um, this intensified black people's desire to leave. How could it not? Yeah, that's that's how the guy at the end of my reading you know, could just drop his hole and just hit it. Yeah. On the first train. Because you're not going to pay me a fair wage anyway, or maybe you'll give me a bill. So what am I doing? I'm just going to leave. Yep. Just going to leave. leave everything I know. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, business owners even went as far as to travel to the north to beg their workers to come back. This never worked. Never. Why would it? Planters who were used to horse whipping their um, workers put the whips aside. And closed their hands and begged people to stay. This too did not work. And what ensued was the breakaway. Um, a little backstory about um, Pershing's area, Monroe, Louisiana. A couple of famous people came from it. Um, 1943, a toddler named Huey Newton migrated from Monroe to Oakland, California with his parents after his father barely avoided a lynching for talking back to a white planter. Do you know who Huey Newton was? The leader of the Black Panther? Yeah, he co-founded Black Panther Party in 1966. Um, in 1934, Bill Russell was born in Monroe, uh, Louisiana, and watched his parents suffer one indignity after another. He, uh, one example was his uh, father pulled up to a gas station and was told, you have to wait for all the white people before you get gas. And he so was he waited. He waited. He waited some more. He said, I'm going to run out of gas waiting here. And he tried to pull off. The gas station owner cocked a gun to his head and said, if you try to do what you're thinking about doing, I'll blow your head off. Leaving the gas station. How? Where you, what? Where you won't let me get gas. <sighs> yeah, his mom was ordered by a policeman to take off her suit because she was trying, quote, to dress like a white woman. He said he'd arrest her if ever he saw her like that again. So... 
When Bill Russell was nine years old, him and his family moved to Oakland. He was able to go to better schools, got a scholarship to university at San Francisco, and led his team to two NCAA championships. His team was the first integrated team pro or uh, college, and he later became one of the greatest pro ballers in history with the Celtics and the first black coach of the NBA. Right. Um, the NBA, or I'm sorry, the FBI, another acronym, <laughs> sorry, initialism, maintained a file on Russell and described him in their file as, again, quote, an arrogant Negro who won't sign autographs for white children. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I think we can end it here this week. What do you think? I think so. I think that's a good place to end. Okay. So what do you think so far of the Great Migration? I am absolutely intrigued by the stories and I can't wait to hear the end of them. Yeah, I want to know because we haven't read it yet. So no. we're not pretending. No, <laughs> we haven't finished it. We're going to read four and five this week. But I want to know if when they came to the North, if it was everything they expected it to be. That's my same thought. Yeah. Is it everything you expected it to be? Yeah. I actually asked that of my um, aunt and she said it was for her. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a piece in the story that we did read that you um, didn't get a chance to talk about. Right, right. Where the travel. Pershing traveling to yeah. California. Maybe I'll tack that on to next week's. It kind of goes with that, I think. Yeah, I think well. that would be good, but that would okay, be Okay, great, friend. Okay, so what we're reading next week, we already know. <laughs> Part two of The Great Migration. That's right. I'm sorry, The Warmth of Other Suns. <laughs> the Warmth of Other Suns. Yeah. Excellent title. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll be here next week, Thursday, mm -hmm. and waiting for you guys to join us. And listen to part two. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. That's me. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts. That thing. Along with a comment of why you absolutely love us. Hey, but did you guys hear that? Stop what you're doing. Go to Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Five-star review. We're begging you. We're begging you like one of them um, planters begging they sharecroppers not to leave North. But this doesn't come with violence. <laughs> There's no violence, okay? Not that kind of. But we, we are begging. We respect you before we, leave, we lose you. That's See, that's right. the difference with us. Please, please. Also, we black. <laughs> so if you enjoyed what you heard tell a friend about Lit you Society did. you know you enjoyed it text your mama say oh mama how was it like for your, our family and we do stories you've been ignoring we do want to hear them stories hopefully yeah. you weren't ignoring them and you could just type them right up yeah. but you know share them stories we would love to hear them for sure visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes for this week's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read, read something. something.